for the Bible study. Well, Father, thank you so much for allowing us to gather in this place. Thank you for giving us a space to, to just study your word. And I like how one, one gal put it the other night, that we're just here to worship you and to study your word. And uh, basically, that's what the church is about. So, Lord, thank you for the simplicity that it is to be your child. And I pray that tonight, as we study your word, that we would be taught about you, that we'd be taught about ourselves, the, the things that you know about us and you want to change. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would have your way with each one of our hearts tonight. Uh, but Father, thank you for your son, Jesus, and thank you that we get to look at his life and his example that he's lived for us. In Jesus' name. <clears throat> Let's see. Well, we are in Mark chapter 1, verse 35 tonight, and what we ended on last week was we studied 1 Peter chapter 1 to talk about the hope that we have in the resurrection. And uh, I saw, saw it as a fitting place. We don't oftentimes on holidays go to a different passage because every time we get together, we're going to study about Jesus in some way, whether it's from the Old Testament or the New Testament. But tonight, uh, we will resume our study in Mark chapter 1, and we'll look at Jesus. And when we last left off was about two weeks ago, and Jesus had arrived in a place called Capernaum. And for all intents and purposes, this is where he will set up his his ministry as a uh, as the one that came to tell us and to live the life that that God had been foretelling through the Old Testament, and so uh, I think in the next slide there's actually a spot that I, I showed you a map a couple weeks ago, and you'll see that in the upper corner up in the middle on this picture on the left there's um, the Sea of Galilee, and he started out in Nazareth to the left of the Sea of Galilee, and then he. He preached there, and when he wasn't accepted, he, sent up, he went up to Capernaum at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and this is where he sets up his headquarters. Now, what we'll find out tonight is because so much of what he did was miraculous, there was this great following, and so because of that, the crowds start to kind of go to him in droves, and it makes it really difficult for him to travel. Kind of like going to the city if you were, you know, some rock star coming to town or if you were going to, you know, some big city and you too was coming in, you'd know there'd be congestion. But what we have is this Savior that's come and he's doing these miraculous works. And as he's doing that, there's all kinds of people trying to follow him, trying to find him where he's at. And because of that, he's not able to travel as easily. And so perched at the north end of Galilee on the map on the right, you'll see Capernaum and you can notice that it's kind of like a modern-day L train, except it's across the water. He can get in a boat, and he can travel, and not everybody can chase after him. He can go to, he's free to go to other places, and so it's kind of a strategic place that God's placed him in. You can go ahead and go back to the first slide. I kind of put those in the wrong order. Uh, but despite the circumstances, Jesus continues to do what his Father sent him to do. He's ministering to an entire region of people, and he came to to start this uh, way that we, he could reach and, and build the kingdom of God. He wasn't building a kingdom for himself, but he was a, building a kingdom that his father sent him to start and even to purchase that kingdom with his own blood, the entrance into that kingdom. Now remember that Mark's gospel emphasizes what the Messiah did rather than what he spoke about. So we don't have a whole lot of his conjecture, a whole lot of his teaching, what he would preach from the Sermon on the Mount, Mount like uh, uh, Mar uh, Matthew chapter 5 through about 7. We don't have a lot of those. We don't have the Olivet Discourse, but what we do have is the deeds that he did. And so um, 
we, I might have mentioned this once or twice, but the theme of Mark is uh, found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where it says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So his, the theme of the book throughout will be service and sacrifice. In John chapter 13, he shows this to his disciples. Jesus spends the last moments of his life and time with his disciples. And the thing that he chose to do during those moments was to wash their feet. And this was a very humble thing. After he washed his disciples' feet, he explains to them why he did this. So in John chapter 13, verse 12 through 17, we a couple slides over. He says, uh, so when he, it says, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and he sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus is living this life of service and sacrifice, not just so that he can be made glorious in himself because a servant is not highly looked upon in, in any society, but he's doing it as an example. He says in one of the gospels, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So he's living this example and he's He's saying, you guys need to imitate me. If you want to be showing that you're my children, that you're my disciples, you'll do the things that I do. So if we read that passage by itself, we might be apt to think that Jesus, at the end of his life, decided that it would be good to teach his disciples to be servants to those that, he had, that he's getting ready to send out. He was, you know, it, it would seem like out of context that at the end of his life, he's like, oh yeah, and serve each other. Serve people. Build my kingdom by serving people. But what we find out from the Gospel of Mark is that's not the case. He was doing it from the very beginning. This is what he's re-emphasizing, an aspect of his character that he had been modeling before their very eyes each day as he had spent it with them. You see, it was part of his character, so it wasn't something that he could put on as a show. It was just what he did. You know, oftentimes we want to teach Things to those people that maybe work for us at work. We want to teach them how to be, you know, show up early and do all those things. And what we'll find is that people may do that and they may do that to please their master or their boss at work. Or your kids may do things because they know you're watching. But Jesus is teaching them in a manner where he's always watching. But it's, you know, you ever try to do something to please God. And then there's other moments where you kind of you stop living in the light of the fact that he's around. Um, basically, we try to put up a facade if we know someone's watching. But with God, he's always watching, but we're not always conscious of that, if that makes sense. And so he's showing them, like, live your life before God all the time. You see, Jesus spent his entire time with the disciples, leading them by example. And as we continue this week, we get to see him continue to serve man, mankind by ministering to those who are in physical need. Two weeks ago, when we last looked at Jesus, he had taught in a synagogue at Capernaum on the Sabbath, and those that heard him mentioned that, that he taught as one having authority. 
And as they were in the synagogue, a man was there who had an unclean spirit, meaning that he had a demon. He was possessed by a demon. And Jesus cast the demon out in the same phrase, with authority. As Jesus ministered to those who were in the temple, it was noticed by others that he taught with and he cast out demons with authority. So afterward, excuse me, the word spread like wildfire and Jesus' fame spread throughout the region. And as Jesus and his disciples go to Peter's place after leaving the synagogue, they, they arrive to find Peter's mother-in-law laying there sick with a fever. So the disciples tell Jesus they had a need, and Jesus reaches out his hand and he heals her on the spot immediately. Meanwhile, a multitude travels from every corner of the region after sunset, because it was the Sabbath, to meet this Jesus who could heal them and or cast out their demons. And this is a lot of this is a lot of demand for one man. It's estimated that he could have healed or cast out hundreds of demons that night, and it, you could see where it would wear on him. Think about an average workday for most of us. We don't talk to probably two or three hundred people, let alone minister to their physical or spiritual needs. This is a very draining process, and so Jesus was pulling an all-nighter in order to meet the continuous flow of needs that presented themselves throughout the day. And it says there that they came to him after night. They showed up at Peter's doorstep and they said, hey, we have these needs. We heard you can meet them. And so it's already dark out. Most of our days, when it gets dark out, we start kind of winding down, eating a little dinner, and we're, we're pretty much done for the night. That's when Jesus started. Now think about it. He had just spent the entire day already ministering to people's needs along the way. So he was like pulling a double shift. So because of that, you could see where it'd be very easy for Jesus to say, you know what, I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to sleep in tomorrow. I'm going to take my Saturday and I'm going to sleep till about noon, get some rest, and then I'll be ready to serve again. But here's what we'll see. Verse 35, in the morning, Having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. He didn't play. (laughs) So he rose a long while before daylight. He went out, departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now, I don't know about you guys, but a long time before daylight, I'm not usually even close to awake. As a matter of fact, if you called my house, I would not answer the phone. I wouldn't even be cognizant that the phone was ringing. Ask my wife, when my alarm goes off when I'm supposed to get up, I still don't hear it. I have to have the little nudge like, honey, if I hear your alarm again, I'm going to push you out of bed. You know, <laughs> She's very gracious in that, but I, I'm not awake during those hours. But Jesus, after pulling this double shift day, we'll call it, he gets up in the morning. And remember, we talked about the fact that he cast out demons with authority. And he ministered with authority. He spoke, he taught as one having authority. Now, where did he get his authority? He got it from the Father. How do you get anything from anyone unless you spend time with them? So Jesus there shows by example, when I'm up in the morning, I'm going to be with Jesus. So having risen a long while before daylight, he spends time with his Lord. He spends time with his Father. He he, uh, spends time hewning that relationship with his dad. So Isaiah chapter 40 kind of speaks to this. It speaks to the character of God. You know, we think about being worn out. And I don't know about you guys, I get worn out all the time, very easily. I'm nothing like Jesus. But what I do know is that the God that we serve does not. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 through 31, 
says, Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, that's me, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Cure for weariness. Time with the Lord, because he's, that's his character. It's not who he's become, it's who he is. He is never out of energy. He doesn't wear out. And so Jesus, knowing this, spends time with the, the source, his father. I like how one commentator put it. He said, It's interesting that Jesus' concept of being renewed in strength and getting refreshed was not sleeping in, but getting out early before anyone else was up and communing with his Father. He drew his strength from prayer. I do not know of any other evidence of the necessity of our praying than the fact that Jesus prayed. If Jesus prayed, why shouldn't we? If he spent time with his Father being one with the Father, as he would later tell his disciples. He says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Or excuse me, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and so that tells us that even though he was in fact God, he knew that it was important not only to say, hey, you need to spend time with the Father, but he led by example. He doesn't call us to do anything he doesn't himself also do. And if he, being the Son of God, saw the necessity of prayer, how much more do we need to pray? If he saw the need of getting up early to pray, how much more should we realize our need for getting up to pray? How important prayer is to the spiritual life of the believer. It's the most important part. And that's what we're going to see tonight. So a few things that I noticed about his prayer. It doesn't tell us what he prayed, right? You'd often wonder, you know, and even the disciples later, they say, show us how to pray, teach us how to pray. But what I want to notice, since he doesn't say what he prays, I want to notice a few things. He rose early to do it. Now, does that mean that you have to pray first thing in the morning? Well, Jesus did. But thats I don't think that's the point. The time that he prayed isn't as important as the priority that he gave prayer. Notice that it was the first thing that he did to start his day. You know, I heard one guy say one time, he said, you know, I woke up in the morning and I realized I'm in the army of the Lord. So I said, okay, commanding officer, what are my orders for the day? If you do that, then you will have no doubt what your purpose is supposed to be. And if you don't hear from him, which happens, and he's just silent, just know that what he's already said in his word, that's your orders for the day. Number two, he prayed in a solitary place. Praying is not something that we can't do if no one else is around. I mean, did I word that right? Praying is not something that we can only do when no one else is around, mind you. Uh, most people, when you walk in the Spirit, you, you pray as you go. As you go, praying to the Lord, constantly communicating with Him. You know, yesterday, I actually slid down a rope. We were at a, we were at a birthday party, and, and I decided that it would be a great idea to show everybody how strong I was. And so, um, I do grow weary. Remember, I just told you that. And I, grew, I, I, I climbed up to the top of this. I think it's like 25 feet, maybe more. I don't know. I won't say that it was more than it was. I climbed all the way to the top, and I couldn't believe I made it up there. I was a foot from the top, and all of a sudden I heard, go, 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 go. And I'm like, oh, well, I can't stop now. So I just kept going. You know, I got up to the top. Well, I didn't have an exit strategy. I wasn't thinking about, like, how am I going to get down? I just was like, gravity will take care of that. Well, it did. I got up there, and I was completely out of strength. 
And I slid down that rope to the point where my hands burned. My wife will attest to you, I cried like a, like a little girl. And uh, I'm okay with that because I, I, I spent a lot of time praying last night, let me tell you. You know, you ever have a stressful situation, you're like, Lord, I wish I wasn't stressed out. He'll give you an opportunity to pray. And so here I am with my hands covered in Neosporin, laying out on my recliner, and the Lord's like, now you can pray. You've been studying about praying all week. Let's do this, right? So I did. Um, but anyway, I don't even know why I told that story. My point being is that I prayed, but there were other people around. But you don't have to be in a solitary place to pray. But what he did is he got some time alone with the Father, and he took an opportunity to speak with him. And prayer is not supposed to be just us giving our grocery list. I'm guilty of this all the time. I come with my petitions, Lord, I need, Lord, I need. And if you have children, I'm sure all the time, I need this. You know, and I'm, I wonder how often times we're asking for things like children that don't really need something, but we really want it. And God always supplies our needs, not always our greeds, right? But what I know is that he spent that time with them and and it's not just about talking to him, though he wants that. He wants to hear us ask for things. But it's also listening to him, spending time in a dialogue. He's not wanting a one-way conversation. He was wanting to listen, us to listen to him. And he has way more to offer us than we do him, believe it or not. But prayer doesn't change God. It changes us. It helps us align ourselves with his will. When we ask for something and we know he's listening, it kind of refines what we ask for. Simply put, <clears throat> he wouldn't be distracted by anything if he was by himself. Some uh, translations say a deserted place. Some say a solitary place. But the whole point is to get to a place by yourself and pray. Actually, it says often of Jesus that he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Luke 5.16 says that. So that's where he got his power. That's where he got his authority. The third thing I noticed about his prayer was Prayer was preparation for him. When he was going to prepare, prepare to go and serve, even the Son of God saw fit that the first thing that he should do is pray. Now, I spend time studying during the week. My oftentimes, unfortunately, first thought is not, let's start praying about this. It's like, okay, I'm going to sit down and read the text. I'm going to start getting all the cross-references. And I do all these things, and then I miss out on the most important part of Bible study. It's spending time with God, and that's what he desires. And so... Jesus led by example, and he did this. So verse 36 says, And Simon, those who were with him, excuse me, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone's looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. In Luke chapter 4, we find that it was not only Simon and the disciples who searched for Jesus, but it was also the multitudes. It was the crowd that had gathered to be healed the night before at Peter's doorstep. But even in Luke chapter 4, Luke writes down that he said to them, however, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also because of this purpose I have been sent. He wasn't sent to one town. He was sent, as John's gospel said, he was sent to the world. So if he's going to reach the world, he can't just stop in every town and camp out there. The Son of God did that, and His ministry was kind of funneled down to one person. But what we find out later is that Jesus, when He died and He was buried and He resurrected and He, 
he met with all the people to encourage them. And then when after 40 days he went up to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit. Because he said to them in John chapter 16, or maybe it was 17, I think it was 16. He said, it's good that I go from you because when I go, I can send the Helper who is the Holy Spirit to empower you to do all the same things I'm doing. But you're going to do even greater things than these. Because Jesus' ministry was only relegated to one body, one person. And so he could only minister where Jesus was at the time. Later, he sends out his disciples. But when he sends his Holy Spirit to work through them, he reaches a whole region and ultimately the entire world. You and I today are a product of him sending his Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit-empowered believers went into the outermost to reach us. And so Jesus could not have reached the entire world in his body. But now Jesus has reached the entire world by sending his spirit. So they went looking for him. And we see there that the disciples were like, where are you at, man? The people are looking for you. But Jesus wasn't trying to become popular. He wasn't trying to minister to these physical needs as much as he came to provide salvation, eternal salvation for those that would call upon his name. So Jesus begins his ministry preaching the message of the kingdom of God from town to town. But before he started, before he started this, his first priority was prayer. And many of the well-known events that many people talk about to this day were powered by prayer. We don't often think of them that way. We think of Jesus walking on the water. We think of the moment he was walking on. But do you know what he was doing before that? He had sent his disciples out on the boat to cross over. He said, get in the boat and cross over. I'll meet, you. I'll, I'll meet up with you. They probably thought he was getting his own boat. He wanted his own time. But what he did is he went up to a mountain and he prayed. And he picked out this mountain that apparently he could see the boat from because as they're getting across, and by the way, when you think of the Sea of Galilee, don't think of like an ocean or like the Indian Sea or I'm trying to think like the Mediterranean Sea. Think of like a lake. You know, this thing's what, 12 miles, 13 miles wide. It's not a sea as we would think of it. It's basically like a really large, it's a great lake. And so as they're going across, this big storm comes in like does in that area because it's a very low area. And as they're going across, Jesus sees them and they're panicking. And so as he's praying, as he's watching during the, the late night hours, he sees them in trouble and he goes out there and meets them in the middle of their situation. But before he did that, he was praying. And no doubt he was praying for those men that they would, that they would do well. And so when he went out there to meet them, remember that it was birthed out of prayer, that power. Um, <clears throat> the night before he chose the, the 12 apostles, remember by now we've only studied the fact that he picked out four disciples, but later he calls 12 of the guys that were his disciples to become his apostles. And so before he ever chose those, which were, we find out 11 of them end up becoming pillars of the church. But then you see the one, Judas, by the way, he still prayed all night for all 12 of those guys that it was God's will for him. He prayed all night. Have you guys ever had something you were so, uh, you were so uh, wanting that the Lord's will would be done that you've prayed all night for it? And Jesus did that when he picked out his 12 disciples. <clears throat> and number three, before he was transfigured on the mountain, the purpose for them to go up on that mountain was actually to pray. He got up there and as he prayed, it says that his face shone like the light from heaven. And then he was transfigured. They saw his glorified body. But in that case, they went up there to pray. That was the whole purpose. So Jesus' powerful ministry always started with prayer. 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 6, He said, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. So we'll go on. Verse 39. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 says, Jesus went out about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria. So it wasn't just that he was casting out demons, but he was also healing people. And that's what we'll see in the next section here. So Jesus was casting out demons, verse 39 of Mark 1 says, but he was also healing all kinds of sickness and disease among the people, according to Matthew 4.23. Excuse me. Verse 40 says, Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Number one, notice here that the leper didn't spend time beating around the bush when he had a a thing that he needed Jesus to meet his need on. He didn't beat around the bush. He got straight to the issue that was forefront in his mind. He approached Jesus. He was imploring him. Other translations say he was beseeching him probably King James, which just means he was calling him near or calling him to come alongside and to see his need. So he implored him, come, see what I'm dealing with here. Number two, then he humbled himself before Jesus and he said, if you are willing, and that's the way we always should be praying. God can do anything within his will. So if we pray for things, notice that the, the, the willingness to pray God's will be done was even something that Jesus did. When he was getting ready to be crucified, he didn't say, Lord, get me out of this hour. I'm, I'm hurting. He said, Lord, if there's any other way that this thing can pass for me, this hour of trial, then please make it pass. But not my will be done. Your will be done. He said, he's basically in that, in that sentence saying, Father knows best. And so he prays that same way. And this man approaches Jesus. He says, if you are willing... You can make me clean. That's a statement of faith. He he knew that Jesus was able to make him clean. He was just wondering if he was willing. So this is more than a statement. It's a profession of faith in Jesus' ability to cleanse him from a disease that is, by the way, incurable. This is not something that they had medicine that would fix. It was something that was unable to be cured. Jesus responds to him, by saying, I am willing, be cleansed. The words no sooner proceeded from Jesus' mouth than the leprosy left him. There's that word again, immediately. We see that over and over in Mark. Notice that when the man came to Jesus and was upfront about his problem, he, in humility, Jesus was moved with compassion. Jesus' compassion caused him to reach out 
and to touch this leper. Now, according to the law of Moses, you are not supposed to touch a leper. You would not be any more considered ceremonially clean. You couldn't go and worship if you touched a leper. You had to be separated from people. As a matter of fact, if you were married to someone and say your spouse became uh, contracted leprosy in some way, uh, you couldn't be around them. They couldn't stay with you anymore. If someone saw them down the street, the leper was actually supposed to call out and say, I'm unclean. They'd have to yell that out amidst all the people that they knew. So they were essentially ostracized. They were outcasts in their society. So he was no longer a leper. Jesus was moved with compassion and he touched this man that was not supposed to be touched. So it says he was no longer a leper here. Immediately he was cleansed. And Jesus said, now go and show yourself to the priest and offer those things which the law prescribed. So God, it seems like in the law, if you want to look it up in your free time, it's really exciting reading. It's Leviticus chapter 14, verse 1 through 32, I think. In the law, God made provisions for man who had an incurable disease, which ostracized him from society. God made provisions for the man with an incurable disease to be returned to society and when he was healed of an incurable disease. But how can you be healed of an incurable disease? God made provision for himself to work as he so desired. Nobody ever noticed that when they read the Old Testament. They didn't go, you know, do you think they were writing down the law? You think Moses was writing it down and he looked up and goes, but, but God, that's not possible. Like, why would this even be in here? No, God put it in there and he, he gave himself to do a miracle. He gave himself room. So God, under the law, gave the law for the leper in the day of his cleansing. See, here's what it would have to happen. He would have to come, show himself to the priest. The priest would examine him, and then he would be put in a house apart from everyone else. So when he, was, he showed up, he was cured of, of, of leprosy, he would go to the priest, show himself. The priest would go, yeah, you, you look fine. We all know you had leprosy because you were always yelling at us. I've got leprosy, but it's not there anymore. And uh, everyone knew it, right? It wasn't something that you could do without being seen so that everyone was aware of it. But when he would come, he would be set apart for seven days after that. And after that seven days, it was kind of like being in a Petri dish. They wanted to make sure that it was really gone. Then you would go to the priest again. You would show yourself. He would examine. And if he was found to be clean, then he was to bring two doves and they were to kill one of them. Now they would kill one of them. They would put the blood in a basin and mix it with water. And they were to take that live dove. I know this is kind of gross, but they would take the live dove and they would dip it in the blood from the dead dove. And from that point on, they would take that dove and they would set it free. And it's symbolic because you know what Jesus did for us, right? He took his life in place of ours. We had something incurable called sin. We had committed sins. There was no way to cure that. It was on our record. The only way for that to be purged is an innocent placed in our place, take on our wrath and bleed out, give its entire life. So what Jesus did is he did that for us. We are then washed in his blood, brought up again, newness of life. And then we are set free from our sins. How beautiful is that? And yet we look at a book like Leviticus and we miss that. But Jesus in his law wrote that. And, and the Lord, knowing that this would take place down the road when his own son 
would be alive and he would cure a leper. And this man is able to go to the temple. And later the priests won't want to have anything in to do with Jesus. The Pharisees would have no good thing to say about him. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to kill him. They ultimately do. And yet his deeds, his miracle works that he was doing were a testimony to them that this is not just some guy. This is the Messiah. So it's interesting to me that God would make that provision in his law. If God leaves himself room to work, even in his law, which actually just shows us that we have sin, surely we ought to leave room for God to work in our own lives. We need to get him out of the box. He's able to do above and beyond what we could ever ask or think. Uh, Paul prayed that in the book of Ephesians. If I want to work and heal a leper, all right, that's what God said. This is the law for the leper in the day of cleansing. The interesting part to me is that um, leprosy, like sin, is just this loathsome thing. Everyone else can see it, but we can't see it. We're blind to it. Do you know that leprosy, the problem with leprosy is not, you know, you always see it in movies. Leprosy was just something where it affected your, your nerve endings. I'm thinking about that because I burned my hand yesterday. I can't feel on those spots that were cauterized. If you put your hand on a stove, it would melt your skin. Well, lepers would walk around and they'd have limbs fall off and people would go, oh, you know, but it would happen because they couldn't feel. And what sin does to us is it cauterizes our conscience. When we sin, it burns us and we don't even know it. And later we go to do something and we do a worse sin and we don't know it. And sin brings forth death. It hurts us. And so God in his long suffering and his mercy provides a way that we can be washed clean, restored holy. So I think I just jumped all over the place and taught it all, but <laughs> he says to him, he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus' response is going to be, I am willing, be thou clean, go show yourself to the priest. Notice, however, that even in the law of Moses, we see Jesus. That's the main point. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 9 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He alone can cleanse. Verse 43, And He strictly warned him and sent him away at once, and He said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, Show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But why would Jesus warn this man not to tell anybody what he had just done? It's an important question, right? Because we're going to see this over and over. He's going to do this mighty miraculous deed, and it's going to be no way to attribute it to any other man. And yet he's going to tell them, be silent. Don't tell anyone. Jesus was trying to avoid the concept that he was just a miracle worker. Every time Jesus commands someone not to tell what had happened, it follows him performing a miracle. Jesus didn't want people to follow him just to see him do tricks. He wasn't a circus freak. He was the Son of God. He came as the Son of God to bring salvation and to bring forgiveness from sin, not just physical healing and miracles. Oftentimes, I said a couple of weeks ago that he, he did that as an avenue to minister to the the, the spiritual need. He would meet their practical need, and that's oftentimes what ministries do. If we're providing food for someone, if down the road we have some ministry outreach 
to those that, that are in need. It's always in it as an avenue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, number two, he was doing this to avoid undue publicity, which would hinder his mobility. We talked about him being at a spot where eventually he can't travel without being completely overwhelmed by people, and so he starts to travel by boat. In verse 45, we see the consequences of this cleansed leper's disobedience. It says, however, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but, what, but was outside in deserted places, and even there they came to him from every direction. So he was hindered. He wasn't able to go as many places freely as he wanted. Number three, to avoid the mistaken notion of the type of Messiah that he came to be. He came to suffer, he came to serve, and to sacrifice himself, not simply to display his power. We'll see this later. We think about that on uh, Palm Sunday when he's in the triumphal entry and he comes into the town and he's riding on the colt full of a donkey. And as he's coming in, they're laying out their clothes. They're putting down, uh, not olive branches, they're laying down palm fronds so that he can walk across them. And as he does that, they're all saying, the Messiah, he's here. And they thought he was going to come in and basically overthrow the government. But we know that he didn't do that. He came to overthrow our sinful lives. He came to, to pay for our sins so that we could live in his kingdom forever. His kingdom's not an earthly kingdom. But notice here, oh, excuse me, and also, number four, he did this, he told him not to tell anybody to avoid a premature death that that increased popularity could bring to him. But also notice that it's impossible to keep quiet those who have been touched and cleansed by God. Do you know that every time that we praise God for doing something in our lives, whether it's something miraculous, whether he's done something seemingly practical like provide for us day to day, every time we give him the praise, it's impossible not to when we know that it was him. When we attribute the works that he does in our lives to him, it's impossible to keep quiet about it. 